The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Almost every culture has a story or parable or fable similar to the one I'm about to read you. I came across this one a little while ago. Um, And this one happens to come from Japan. It's called the Stone Cutter. Once upon a time, there lived a stone cutter who went every day to a great rock in the side of a big mountain and cut out slabs for gravestones or for houses. He understood very well the kinds of stones wanted for the different purposes, and he was a careful workman, and so he had plenty of customers. For a long time, he was quite happy and contented and asked for nothing better than what he had. Now in the mountain, there dwelt a spirit which now and again appeared to men and helped them in many ways to become rich and prosperous. The stone cutter, however, had never seen the spirit and only shook his head with an unbelieving air when anyone spoke of it. But a time was coming when he learned to change his opinion. One day, the stonecutter carried a gravestone to the house of a rich man and saw there all sorts of beautiful things of which he had never even dreamed. And suddenly his daily work seemed to grow harder and heavier. And he said to himself, oh, if only I were a rich man and could sleep in a bed with silken curtains and golden tassels, how happy I should be. And a voice answered him, Your wish is heard, a rich man you shall be. At the sound of the voice, the stonecutter looked around but could see nobody. He thought it was all his fancy and picked up his tools and went home, for he did not feel inclined to do any more work that day. But when he reached the little house where he lived, he stood still with amazement, for instead of his wooden hut was a stately palace filled with splendid furniture, and most splendid of all was the bed in every respect like the one that he had envied. He was nearly beside himself with joy, and in his new life the old one would soon be forgotten. It was now the beginning of summer, and each day the sun blazed more fiercely. One morning the heat was so great that the stonecutter could scarcely breathe, and he determined that he would stop at home uh, till the evening. He was rather dull, for he had never learned how to amuse himself and was peeping through the closed blinds to see what was going on in the street when a little carriage passed by, drawn by servants dressed in blue and silver. In the carriage sat a prince, and over his head a golden umbrella was held to protect him from the sun's rays. Oh, if only I were a prince, the stonecutter said to himself as the carriage vanished around the corner. Oh, if only I were a prince and could go in such a carriage and have a golden umbrella held over me. How happy I should be. And a prince he was. Before his carriage rode one company of men and another rode behind it. Servants dressed in scarlet and gold bore him along. The coveted umbrella was held over his head. Everything his heart could desire was now his. But yet it was not enough. He looked around still for something to wish for. That's the key. And when he saw that in spite of the water that poured on the grass, the days of the sun scorched it, and in spite of the umbrella held over his head every day, his face grew browner and browner. And he cried in his anger, the sun is mightier than I. Oh, if only I were the sun. The mountain spirit answered, your wish is heard. The sun you shall be. 
and the son he was, and felt himself proud in his power. He shot his beams above and below, on earth and in heaven. He burnt up the grass in the fields, and scorched the faces of princes as well as of poorer folk. But in a short time he began to grow tired of his might, for there seemed nothing left for him to do. Discontent once more filled his soul, and when a cloud covered his face and hid the earth from him, he cried in his anger, Does the cloud hold captive my rays? And is it mightier than I? Oh, that I were a cloud, mightier than any. And the mountain spirit answered, Your wish is heard, a cloud you shall be. And a cloud he was, and lay between the sun and the earth. He caught the sun's beams and held them, and to his joy the earth grew green again and flowers blossomed. But that was still not enough for him. And for days and weeks he poured forth uh, rain until the rivers overflowed their banks and the crops of rice stood still in the water. Towns and villages were destroyed by the power of the rain. Only the great rock on the mountainside remained unmoved. The cloud was amazed at the sight and cried in wonder, Is the rock then mightier than I? Oh, if only I were the rock. And the mountain spirit answered, Your wish is heard. The rock you shall be. And the rock he was, and he gloried in his power. Proudly he stood, and neither the heat of the sun nor the force of the rain could move him at all. This is better than all, he said to himself. But one day he heard a strange noise at his feet, and when he looked down to look what it could be, he saw a stone cutter driving tools into his surface. And even while he looked, a trembling feeling ran all around him, and a great block broke off and fell before the ground. And he cried in his wrath, Is a mere child of the earth mightier than a rock? If only I were a stone cutter. And the mountain spirit answered, Your wish is heard. Stone cutter once more you shall be. And a stone cutter he was. In the sweat of his brow he toiled again at the trade of stone cutting. His bed was hard and his food was scanty. But he had learned to be satisfied with it and did not long to be something or somebody else. And he never again asked for things he did not have or desired to be greater and mightier than other people. He was happy at last and never again heard the voice of the mountain spirit. So that's an interesting story, isn't it? I came across that one. And there are many such like it. You know the Grimm's fairy tale, The Fisherman and His Wife? You remember that one where he catches a magic fish and keeps the wife keeps asking for another? But I didn't want to get into all that because then, you know, you think it was always the wife. You know, the fact of the matter is it's really intrinsic to the human heart, isn't it, to be discontent. And so I like this story because it shows uh, that inside each one of us is a yearning for something other than we have. And you know something, that yearning, that desiring is not a bad thing. The thing is, what do you connect it to? And that's what we're getting at tonight. Tonight we're looking at the last of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet. And I'd like to read all the commandments, but then focus on the Tenth. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them and worship worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who love me, but showing of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you 
nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So tonight we're looking at the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Now what is coveting? What does it mean? Well, a definition would be a strong and abiding desire so that there is a yearning, a lusting and a desiring and a heart sickness. Uh, the way I look at covetousness is a discontent coupled with ambition, a discontent concerning your earthly circumstance and an ambition for somebody else's earthly circumstance, whatever it might be. And I think the two of them go together, the discontent coupled with the ambition. Uh, along with it would be a fixation, uh, thinking constantly about this thing, a wanting it so much uh, that you lose uh, joy in the other things that you have. Now, there are many examples of coveting in the Bible. For example, Achan and Jericho. Uh, Jericho was the first city conquered by the Jews when they crossed the Jordan River to take over the Promised Land. And God said that everything in the city was his. So that means for any Israelite to want something in the city, it was coveting. Do you see that? It, it didn't belong to them. And for them to set their desire on something in the city and want it for their own would be coveting. And that's exactly what Achan said happened to him. <clears throat> Achan said in Joshua 7:21, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. And took them. So earlier we studied you shall not steal. But before the stealing comes the coveting. Before the stealing comes the coveting. And so he set his heart on these things. And he took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent, he said, with the silver underneath. So Achan went across the barrier that God had set up, the boundary, and wanted something that wasn't his. In this case, it was that beautiful robe and the gold and silver. We have another example of this um, with David and Bathsheba. In uh, 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 4, it says, <clears throat> One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came uh, to him, and he slept with her. Now, it's interesting, when Nathan the prophet goes to rebuke David, this is what, he, what Nathan says, what the Lord says, really the Lord says through Nathan uh, to David. Um, after Nathan told the parable about the man who uh, stole his neighbor's um, lamb to feed a, a stranger, traveling stra stranger, David got angry and said the man deserves to die because he had no pity. And then Nathan points a finger and says, you are the man. And then he says this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Now listen, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. It's very much like those parables or those fables that you hear. 
<clears throat> if that had been not enough, I would have given you even more. Then why is it that you stood in that roof and coveted something that you could not have? Something that was outside of what I had granted to you. Perhaps one of the best examples of coveting, specifically of material possession, comes in the story of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, which we uh, looked at uh, some time ago. As it turns out, this man Naboth had a vineyard in Jezreel. And Ahab the king looked at the vineyard and liked it, and he wanted it. And so he went to Ahab and offered to buy it from him, but, uh, I mean, went to Naboth and offered to buy it uh, from him. But Naboth said, how could I ever sell my my father's inheritance, what I I received, my, my allotted territory? And you see, there's that sense of what's been allotted. It's their ancestral home. There's no way he's going to sell it. It has nothing to do with price. It just has to do with what the Lord had given. Well, Ahab, as you remember, you remember what he did? He lay on his bed and pouted. You remember that? Like a sick puppy. And you remember his wonderful wife, Jezebel, came in and said, What is your problem? And he says, I'm just sick because I can't have Naboth's vineyard. And she said, Listen, leave that to me. And she gets some false witnesses who testify against Naboth. And put him to death. I'm wondering how many of the Ten Commandments we can break in one incident. And that's exactly what happens. But the root of it all was what? It was covetousness. It was the fact that this king could not be satisfied with what uh, he had given him. And then there's a story concerning the disciples. Consider this one. In Matthew 20, uh, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. That should have stopped all of them right there. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? We can, they answered. James and John answered, we can. And then Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom the Father has prepared them. Now listen to this. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now what's going on there? There's a jealousy. There's a covetousness. It seems that James and John are moving up in the master's estimation. They're getting a little too close to the master. And they're gaining, they're wanting position, the inside track on secretary of state and assistant undersecretary for whatever it was. I don't know. But they wanted those positions of power. And then Jesus has to give them a lesson concerning authority and contentedness. And uh, that's a, an example of covetousness. Now, Thomas Watson says that there are a number of occasions of covetousness. As you look at it and you see these things in your life, as you see these symptoms, you could say, of covetousness, he says, beware. This is when it's taken hold of you. For example, if your thoughts are wholly taken up with some worldly thing. In other words, your mind is fixating on something. You find yourself thinking more about that worldly or earthly thing than you do about the Lord. Uh, Secondly, taking more pains for getting earth than getting heaven. Um, you know, I, I read an article uh, recently about Bill Gates and his spiritual background. And uh, in a cover story in uh, Time magazine a number of years ago, Gates was asked if there isn't something divine about the human soul. And Gates replied tonelessly, I don't have any evidence on that. I don't have any evidence on that at all. He later added, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning, end quote. Well, that means that he is so focused on earthly things that he has no time for heavenly. You know that the scripture in Colossians says that we should be exactly the other way around. 
We should be focused, so completely focused on heavenly things that the earth has no hold on us. And so a symptom of covetousness is that you take more pains for gaining something earthly than you do for gaining something heavenly. Uh, Thirdly, constant conversation about the world. Uh, What do you talk about? What fills your mouth? What, What inflames your imagination? And what eventually do you communicate about? Fourthly, Watson talked about exchanging heavenly things for earthly. Uh, For example, starting to sacrifice, let's say, your quiet time or some other things so that you can gain some earthly advantage. Uh, That's an evidence of covetousness. Uh, Fifth, overloaded with worldly business, just being too busy for the things of God. That can be a a sign or symptom of covetousness. Or, finally, a willingness to use unlawful means to gain something earthly. Uh, That has become your God. It's become the focus of your life, and you're willing to exchange uh, even your morality to get the thing you want. Beware when you see these things uh, coming to you. Now, the command itself in verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so he lists some specific things that you're not to covet. Uh, Coveting, for example, a neighbor's house. Now, I wonder if it is coveting if you just admire the beauty of a house, you know? I wonder about that. But... That's where it all starts. You look at something and you say, hey, look at that. They, don't, they have a better lawn than we do. For, that's something I notice more than I used to. I wonder about that. But I notice when somebody's lawn is really doing well. Um, boy, look at that. What a lush lawn. Boy, am I glad that God has apportioned that to him and that he's got that beautiful lawn. You see what I'm talking about? But just admiration for something. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Don't stand there and look and say, you know, I wish I had it. Wish I had it. I'm not satisfied with God's given me. I wish I had what God gave to him or her. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Again, that was the problem uh, with David on the roof there, among other things. But uh, I think there's one word that should have stopped him when he called that messenger. And the messenger said, isn't that uh, Uriah's wife? That should end it right there. It should have ended before that. But uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or as manservant or maidservant, uh, a loyal servant, somebody perhaps who's better than your servants. And uh, you say, boy, I wish I had him working for me. Um, Or you shall not covet his ox or donkey. And then coveting in general is taken up in the very last phrase. You really shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, anything at all. Uh, So that's what the command specifically says. But uh, this includes anything pertaining to earthly circumstances. And this is where it comes. I was talking to, um, well, I was talking to Alan Carlson about just, you know, some aspects of being American. One of the things about being Americans is that we do not tolerate earthly inconvenience. We fix it. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, if there's something that bothers us, we address means to solve the problem. And it's called inventiveness, right, or creativity. They'd say that necessity is the mother of invention. Well, I think that annoyance is the mother of invention, you know? I mean, you're just, boy, you know, the sun's beating down on me. I want to find some way to solve the problem. Well, that's all fine, and I think the Lord has given us that capability. But if you take it too far, what it leads to is one of two things, if not both of two things. It leads to pride when you solve the problems, and it leads to kind of a a moral weakness in that we become slaves of our surrounding circumstances. 
And that leads to discontent, doesn't it? We're just never happy with the stuff we have. We're never happy with the circumstance we have. And if we don't like it, we're going to do what we can to fix it. And if we can't fix it, we're going to be discontent. Well, that's the whole treadmill of covetousness. And so it relates to anything that uh, could be earthly, uh, an earthly advantage that God would give to somebody but not to you. For example, it could have to do with, with uh, a person's appearance, their good looks. You know, maybe, maybe their, their body shape or their hair uh, or their appearance, something about their physical appearance. Or intellectual ability. You could covet somebody's intellectual ability, the fact that they just seem to understand things better than you. You could covet somebody's job situation. Uh, promotions are a big issue, you know. You, you could get passed over. And that is a great temptation at that moment to discontent and covetousness, isn't it? Uh, I've heard a story of a monk that was fasting and, and, and all of these demons were coming at this guy. And, and this, this master tempter came to the, one of the lesser demons, like screw tape, you know, this kind of thing, and, uh, and said, uh, what you need to do is just go whisper this in his ear. And what the demon, the older demon, told the younger demon to whisper is, your brother's just been made Archbishop of Alexandria. All right? Well, that just sowed a seed of discontent and covetousness in his heart that just bore uh, the bitter fruit of sin. And so any, like a job situation, promotions, or athletic skill, the fact that somebody else can do something on a basketball court or a tennis court that you can't, uh, you could be covetous of that. You could covet a possession, maybe a piece of art, some rare art or some real estate. Or uh, some, I think, you ever read the stories about just the White House politics and the, and the jockeying for position that goes on, being part of the president's inner circle. You know, and they're very jealous of who gets how many minutes of ear time with the president, that kind of thing. And it's been going on for years and years, the jockeying for position. That's a form of covetousness, isn't it? Or uh, children, you can covet children. Perhaps some have the heartbreak of like Abraham and Sarah being unable to conceive, it seems, and so they could covet having children. Or maybe you could covet that, that your neighbor's children are, are just doing better in school or, or seem better mannered. Uh, any, l- listen, any earthly circumstance that somebody else could have and you don't could be a ground of covetousness. Now, the root issue here, I think John Piper's put his finger on it, is that the heart is a desire factory. Isn't that a great concept? The heart is a desire factory. Did you hear it in the stonecutter story? He wanted something to want. you got to want something. And so he's always wanting. And what Piper would say is it's not a bad thing to want. Wanting is a good thing. The question is what is it you want? What are you desiring? The heart is a desire uh, factory. You know, the same uh, command restated in Deuteronomy says this. In Deuteronomy 5.21... It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land. His manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Uh, This word is also translated in Isaiah 26, 9. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. So it is a good thing to long for something as long as it's the Lord, you see? And so he says, you shall not set your desire on or long for any earthly thing. John Piper put it this way. The heart is a desire factory. The human heart produces desires as fire produces heat. As surely as the sparks fly upward, the heart pumps out desire after desire for a happier future. The condition of the heart is appraised by the kinds of desires that hold sway. Or to put it another way, the state of the heart is shown by the things that satisfy its desires. If it is satisfied with mean and ugly things, it is a mean and ugly heart. And if it is satisfied with God, it is a godly heart. 
That's from the book Future Grace. Covetousness, then, is what our hearts do when they are no longer satisfied with God. Let me say that again. Covetousness is what your heart does when it's no longer satisfied with God. Buddhism teaches us that the key is to get rid of desire itself. Christianity does not teach us that. Christianity says you can as easily stop desiring as you can stop existing as a human being. The two are wrapped up. We are created to desire. But that desire was to be focused on God. And when we turn that desire factory issue away from God and onto earthly things, we become covetous. It's inevitable. And idolatrous, too. You see that, how the two go together. Because really, covetousness is a form of idolatry. Whether you own that thing or not, you're honoring it and you're worshiping it and you're focusing on it. It has become the center of your existence. Now, the issue comes here with the fact that God either gives or doesn't give. Isn't that the issue? He either gives you the thing or he doesn't give it to you. Now, if you have it, the scripture says, don't boast about it. In 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, Who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That means everything you have, every good and perfect gift has come down from God, right? Well, it was a great insight for me, and it helped me in a major way when I began to realize that the same was true for my neighbor. That means every good and perfect gift he has or she has has come from God as well, right? Now, how did it help me? Well, it helped me on the basketball court. The fact of the matter is, I was very competitive. I was unpleasantly competitive. Have you ever been around anyone who's unpleasantly competitive? Well, that was me. Um, And, you know, I still struggle with it somewhat. But it's just a covetousness that, you know, you want the monopoly properties that your neighbor has. I mean, you can't be happy with what you have. you got to conquer, right? And so there you are on the basketball court and, and bad things are happening to you. And as a result of those bad things, you lose your sanctification. You lose your happiness and your joy in the Lord. It's just gone. And it's so hard to enjoy a basketball game when you're consumed with this disease, this green-eyed monster of covetousness. And what the Lord showed me is, you know, and, and this is it's very interesting how it happened. I was praying and, and there was a sense of, do you enjoy playing basketball? Yeah, when I'm playing well, yes, I enjoy that. Uh, do you feel a sense of pride when you make a shot that you've done this all by yourself? No, no, Lord, you gave me that ability and I just give you the thanks and praise. Well, how about maybe another Christian when he makes a shot? Did I not give that ability to him too? Well, yes. Well, can't you celebrate as much when your neighbor makes a shot as when you do? Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Especially not if I'm guarding my neighbor. And it's because of my defensive inabilities that he made the shot, that kind of thing. But the seed was sown that eventually ruined the covetous problem. And I could play hard and enjoy it, but celebrate just as much And the the practical step for me was to begin to compliment and encourage and say praise the Lord or something when somebody would do something well. See, covetousness forgets that all the good things that we have are apportioned out by God. He's the one who decides what you get and what you don't get. And if you don't have something, it's because God said that you should not have it, at least not yet. And that was the thing with Abraham and Sarah. You remember how they said God had not given us a child. And they were right about that. They really saw it properly. It was the Lord that had chosen not to give them a child up to that point. Now, what is the danger of covetousness? Well, individually, it leads, as I've mentioned a moment ago, to idolatry. You end up worshiping the thing you covet. And as a result of that, it leads eventually to every evil practice. Covetousness is idolatry. 
Covetousness is greed, isn't it? It's the same thing as greed. And the scripture calls greed idolatry. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many uh, griefs. And so uh, covetousness leads to all kinds of sin. Love of money is covetousness, and it leads to all kinds of evil practices. Now, individually, it leads to idolatry in every evil practice. Corporately and nationally, it leads to conquest. It leads to armies on the move taking over other people's territories. This is what it says in Habakkuk 2, 4, and 5. Speaking of the conqueror who comes, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Listen, because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. So that is, you know, that's the conqueror. That's Alexander the Great. You know, that's uh, Caesar, that's Hitler, that's these folks that are just not content and they've got to go take something from their neighbor. They're moving out and that's corporately. Ultimately, God judges it. It says in Ephesians 5, 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, the two are equal, covetous equals idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You can't go to heaven as a covetous man or woman. It's impossible. You're an idolater. And so God judges it. Now, Paul had some insights on coveting. We already heard read for us Romans chapter 9. The issue is what's going on in the heart. Have you ever witnessed to somebody, and maybe you haven't done this before, but I would really urge that you use the Ten Commandments in witnessing. The Ten Commandments are very powerful and strong in witnessing. And why? Because they show us our sinfulness. And if you take the Ten Commandments and use, for example, Jesus' understanding of murder as anger and adultery as lust, that's, that's strong work that happens on the heart. But this Tenth Commandment is one that nobody can rightly say that they have never indulged in. Covetousness is an issue of the heart. You could say, I've never murdered. You could say, I've never stolen. You could think you can say, although we should bring them in and ask, I've always honored my parents. You know, the rich young ruler said he did. Okay, but can you honestly say you've never coveted anything that belonged to your neighbor? And this was the very one that the Apostle Paul zeroes in on in Romans 7. He said, you know, once I was alive apart from the law, but when I read that commandment, you shall not covet, I found out what covetousness was, and it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Paul was ambitious, wasn't he? He was a kind of a Jewish ladder climber. And he must have been very covetous. He must have seen what the high priests had. He must have seen what the Sanhedrin leaders had. He must have seen what Gamaliel had, his teacher, and said, I want that. And so he was ambitious. He was zealous for his own glory. And he was covetous. And that's what killed him. Uh, he said, once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And so he found himself filled with covetousness. Now, what is the opposite of covetousness? Well, it is contentment. It is godly contentment. It is being satisfied with what you have because it came from God. And that's enough for you. God gave it and that's enough. I love this in Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Now just listen to that again. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Can I stop and ask you, is the Lord's assigned portion and cup enough for you in this world? Is it enough? I'm not talking about eternity because God has given you heaven. And remember, Scripture says, all things are yours. You're going to inherit the earth. What more could you want? 
So why does it matter what you're holding as you walk through the corridor en route to where you're going? It doesn't matter much, does it? Okay? But my question is, it says in Psalm 16:5, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Is that you? Can you say that with the psalmist, with Psalm 16? I'm, I'm satisfied with my boundary lines. I'm not going to be standing up on, on my roof and looking down at my neighbor's anything and wishing I had it. I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to allow discontent to come. I'm satisfied, Lord, with what you've given me. I'm content. Listen again to Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me, Paul says to the Philippians. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul says the secret is... Uh, a total reliance on him who gives us strength, namely Christ. And in Christ, we can find contentment in whatever boundary lines God has assigned for us. Now, I preached on that in Philippians 4. This was a strong and uh, important theme in that chapter. And you remember Jeremiah Burroughs' great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You should get it and read it again. If, if you want to drive out covetousness, get that book and read it and meditate on, on it line by line. There's so much good advice in there. Now, tonight I've given you a sheet. Um, I said before that there is, you should not, it's impossible for you not to desire something. You're going to desire something. So the question is, what should you desire? And what should you seek? And I went through the scripture and I just found many places, I'm not going to say all the places, but many places where the verb desire or want or seek or yearn or hunger for is found positively placed. And I've got, how many? 16 of them. These are 16 things that the scripture says you should seek or want if you're a godly person. And so this is what I'm saying. We're not Buddhists. We're not trying to get rid of the wanting mechanism or the desiring mechanism. Not at all. We're trying to feed it with godly things. And so what's the first and highest thing we should want above all things? Don't look at the sheet. Come on, come on. Don't look at the sheet. What is the first and highest thing? God and God alone. And we could also say, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You know, and so there's zeroing in on the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, yearning for him, wanting him. We should want it above all things. It says in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is not covetousness. This is not idolatry. This is worship. Do you see it? We're hungering and thirsting for God and for God alone. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. There's a yearning to know Christ, a focus on him. First and foremost, all these other things you can read. I am not going to read through them tonight. But what I'd like you to do is take this sheet, the 16 things that the scripture says that you should and can want and yearn for and pray over them. Desire them. Let desire for these things drive out lesser desires, earthly desires. I don't need those things. I want these things. 16 things. What then shall we do if we notice that we are being covetous? Well, I've already just given you one just now. Yearn for the things that God says. I think more than anything, it is faith in Christ that drives out covetousness. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, This is the victory that has overcome the world, 
namely our faith. It is faith that drives out covetousness. See things as they really are. Uh, Secondly, renew your mind with the word of God. A constant flowing of the scripture through the mind of God renews God and God alone as the center of your life. His promises become enough for you. Thirdly, embrace the doctrine of God's providence. Think again. Everything you have has been given you from him. Everything you do not have has been not given you by him. He is the issue. If there's something you want and don't have, then go ask him for it. If it's a godly thing and good for you and for the kingdom, he will give it to you. That's what prayer is for. Prayer is the matter of things you don't have. And so you should go and if you want something, ask him for it. And if it is good, he will give it to you. So embrace the doctrine of God's providence and with it a healthy doctrine of prayer. Set your heart on things above, as I've just mentioned. And repent when you catch yourself coveting. Call it what it is. Lord, I confess to you that just now I was coveting something that belonged to my neighbor. I wanted something that she had or that he had, and I'm sorry, and I ask for your forgiveness. And then finally, understand this. The more you have, the more you are accountable for on Judgment Day. So why would you want more anyway? Just be happy with the little that you have and don't ask for any more. And just say, Lord, this is enough for me to answer for on that great and final day. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.